Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. There's no way I would have ever been on television at all if I had never met you and we had never done what we've done. I never thought about it a day. Not a day. I had the disease to please for a long time. You know that. Yeah. It's not like what we do or have done changes the world, but it certainly changed the narrative. You know, the worst <laughs> thing you've ever said to me, do you know what it is? No, I don't. It? No, I don't. Oh, but. you do too. <laughs> what did I say? You know, when I started filling in the blanks, I said I was going to get to talk to interesting people about interesting things. And my friend Oprah Winfrey is the best example of that I can think. Now, I've known Oprah for almost 25 years, and I've really gotten to know her in every walk of life. And I've got to tell you, people ask me all the time, is Oprah really as nice as she seems on TV? And the answer is no. TV doesn't even almost capture how real, how nice, how warm, and how sincere this woman really is. She's got what I call a health-engendering personality. You cannot be around Oprah without feeling better about yourself when you walk away. Now, what you're getting ready to hear is just two friends sitting down and talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and what's happening in today's world. You know, we're also going to talk about her really exciting new book, The Path Made Clear, Discovering Your Life's Direction and Purpose. And in this book, she talks to some really innovative thought leaders about what strategies they've embraced to be who they have become. You just get ready to be a fly on the wall and listen to us sit down and talk about things that matter to people who care. We're going to jump into all of that in 40 seconds. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Bill, this is so cool. This is like, you, you do nothing small. Boy, I taught you well. Yes, you did. I taught you well, honey. You, you took the baton and you didn't just run with it. You created a baton company. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, you taught me well. Oh my God, I taught you well. Who knew? Who knew? I, the fruits of my labor. My God. So how are you? Good to be here with you in the now fill in the blank studio. And when did you start this? In the summer. Really? I was working on it before I came and did yours, but then I started in the summer. I had about 35 in the can before I did my first one. Really? So I stay about 20 ahead. I learned. Get ahead, stay ahead. Get ahead, stay ahead. So now you can leave and go on vacay and be, be cool, right? Yeah. And I have a second one starting in a couple of weeks. It's Analysis of a Murder by Dr. Phil. 
Ooh. You know, we do all these cases. Yeah. And so I'm going in depth on them. Like the first one is the killer thorn of Gypsy Rose. Gypsy Rose, the Hulu. Th- that one? Right now. I'm the only one that's ever interviewed her. Wow. Interviewed her in prison. What means, which means you break it down? Yeah, like, I go inside their heads to figure out you know, why they did what they did and how they did it. And, so are you talking to them uh, about it? Talking or to the you, you're talking to the murderer? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and really getting into what they're doing. That's fascinating, actually. Yeah. Like yeah. I told you, I saw the one um, with the Watts family. Do him. Why did he do that? What was yeah. he thinking? What is that? Is that a sociopath or is that a... What it's, is it? it's a malignant narcissist sociopath. So malignant narcissist. Yeah, which is different than the straight narcissist who's just really full of themselves. This is malignant in that these people will kill you and think they get away with it. That's a different kind of brain, isn't it? Yeah, that's a different kind of sick right yeah, there. Yeah, Okay. So. All right, let's talk about enlightening things. On a happier <laughs> note. <laughs> Can we please? But I'm fascinated by this. I don't yeah. know. And why are we so fascinated by it? I don't even know. Well, all behaviors on a continuum, right? I mean, and I, that's what you're talking about in The Path Made Clear. All behaviors on a continuum. So, if... And you know what I mean by that? Yes, I do. Everything is from light to dark. Yeah. And the dark, 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 we relate to because we're on that continuum. But you think about it this way. Think about how far you would have to go from where you are now to do what he did. How demented would you have to become? How sick would you have to be? You can't even imagine going there, right? No, you can't imagine going there and also believe in the deepest part of myself that I couldn't go there, that I'd rather take my own life than do that. And that's why they get away with it, because we don't see it coming, because we don't have the constructs to go there. We can't even conceive of it, so we don't see it coming. That's how muggers get away with mugging people, because when you walk up to somebody on the street, and you say, do you have the time? Yeah. We, look, we, don't, we don't concede that somebody's going to walk up and hit us in the head. That's right. Our mind doesn't go there because we're not on that end of That's the continuum. That's right. That's right. They, use, they know that, and they use that three to four second shock to get the advantage and, and hit us in the head and take our money. They know that. The criminals know that. They know we don't live in those dark shadows, and they use that to their advantage. Well, you just know the most about human behavior. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, if I was stuck in a burning building, I would look to see if you were in there somewhere because you'd be the guy I'd be following out. You'd follow me out. I'd right? follow you right out. Yeah. Well, I know. But, Can you believe? Are we rolling? Yes. Oh, yeah. good. Can you believe? Is that tape rolling? <laughs> is that tape rolling? Can you believe that we started at a time which was the most tumultuous in my life? And now I think of it. It's been over 20 years. Right. It feels like, oh, yeah, that thing happened. It feels like it's sort of like a blip on the radar screen of my life. But it was such a big thing at the time going through trial. Yeah. And how I flunked CSI first time. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. You're the only client that's ever done that. (laughs) That's ever flunked? No, you're the only client I've ever been in a focus group and you open the doors and come running in in the middle of focus group. I've never had a client do that ever. Really? Yeah. You come running in there and said, no, I'm not a bitch. Seriously, <laughs> I'm not a bitch. I'm honestly, I'm, I'm uh, why not, are you hating on me like that? Oh, my gosh. I know. 
I pray to never have to go through it again. Why does being on trial, why is it such a taxing thing? You know, I had that big revelation when I was on the witness stand for two days in a row. And the big revelation to me was that everybody goes through trials in their life. Oh, I have a big life, so now I'm on trial. But people have trials of cancer, divorce, difficulties, challenges in their life where it feels like a trial. And then I thought, oh, I'm really on trial. And something about that just was very calming to me. And that all trials sort of stands outside your personhood your spirit to try to tell you who you are. And I had that moment as the prosecutor was yelling and spitting at me that, oh, gee, what you're saying is not true. And he was saying, this woman is a liar. She's a liar. And I had that moment like, well, what he's saying is not true, that I had set up his entire clients to fail and whatever in the beef industry, you know? Yeah. You remember that night you woke me up and you said, what is happening here? Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah. I thought that was the beginning of that realization. And it's so interesting that you say in The Path Made Clear, I think it's in chapter 9 or 10, you say, do not try me because I know who I am. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That harkened back for me to that time because you say, do not try me because I know who I am. I think trials, when you're the target, yeah. which you were then, I think those legal trials in the courtroom are like a microcosm of life. It's like a little miniature life. Yeah. We're going to condense everything down right now and find out who you are. Yes. It's not fair. You're at a crooked table. It's like everything is stacked against you, and we're going to find out how much you believe in yourself and how much you're willing to stand up against the machine. I'm not telling you this because we're such good friends. You are the best witness I have ever had in all the litigation I've ever seen because you were so calm at the center. The louder and more animated they got, the calmer you became. Yes, that is true. And they didn't know what to do. It was like throwing a ball against a wall it wouldn't bounce off of. I would have to say it was one of my, if not the most, certainly one of the greatest spiritual teaching lessons of my life that the louder they became, literally the calmer I got, because I thought, first of all, I re was reminded of that Bible verse that says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And right. remember when Maya Angelou came down and she yeah. was in the Jew, she was like in the back rooms. Yeah. Maya came down and she had her whole praying committee and they were in the hotel down the street praying for me, all because I was on trial for saying something bad about a burger. But Maya was going to pray him up. And Maya had said to me, you go in that courtroom and every morning you look the jury in the eye and you repeat in your own mind, in God, I move and breathe and have my being. This like Acts 17, 2, I think. I became familiar with that Bible verse then. In God, I move and breathe and have my being. And she was saying, that is how you're going to move through this trial. Only if you have God in the center of you and you be in the center of God. And that's, that's how I did it. Yeah. I actually, it was really one of the great spiritual trials of my life. You got calmer as it went on. Yeah, I got calmer. I was a little crazy yeah. in the beginning, yeah. eating a lot of pie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we sat on the floor and ate some pie. We ate a lot of pie. I thought I could solve the problem eating pie. But as the time wore on 
And I learned so much from it that being able to share those lessons with other people is also important to me now. Yeah. Maya was a big help in that. She watched me through that and she said, you're way ahead of this game, aren't you? Yes, 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 (laughs) yes. uh, It was after that. She said, if he wasn't married, I'd smother a chicken for him. (laughs) (laughs) You remember she said that? You know, I wouldn't mind smothering the chicken for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good thing. Oh, it's not it's for the chicken. Yeah, not but. for the chicken. No, you got to do a lot of impressing to impress Maya Angelou. You know that. Because yeah. she could see right through anything. Oh, man. That was. She asked me one day during trials, she said, do you ever flinch or move or do you just watch the whole time and study? I said, no, I just watch and study. She said, you keep it up. <laughs> and she walked off. It's so interesting. I mean, I think this is true for most people, though. You look back at your life at things that felt so challenging at one point or things that, you know, I've kept a journal since I was 15 on and off. And if I didn't write specifically what the thing was that was troubling me, if I go back now, the other night I was just going through a drawer, I just was going through a drawer and I pulled out a journal that I'd written in 2003, 2004, 2005. Fascinating to see what your life was even 10, 15 years ago. But the level of happiness and joy, the journal that I I discovered was just as I was about to move into my new house in Santa Barbara. And the level of joy and appreciation that I felt then, I still have now. So this is really great to know that, oh, gee, that same light that I felt when I moved in here, I'm still carrying that every day. I wake up going, I can't believe I live here. But it's also interesting when you look back on things that were troubling you, if you don't write the specifics down, you can't remember what it even was. Yeah, our mind has a way of protecting us from that. That's why we don't remember the pain of surgery or childbirth. We have a way of blocking those things out. It's called perceptual defense. If you think back during that time, as difficult as it was at trial, think back about how much fun we actually had. Because you were doing the show in the little theater. Yes. We were sneaking off in the Toyota to go to trial. You and Jay were going to Kmart. (laughs) I'll never forget him saying you were telling him, I can't believe what you can get for nine ninety nine. There were some really good times. Yeah, and the fact that I remember that little bed and breakfast we were staying at, yeah. and a lot of people on my team were like, we've got to get back to Chicago, but it was clean. I felt safe there, and I just thought, I will make peace with what is right now. Yeah, yeah you bloom where you planted, you know. It's, yeah. It worked out. We yeah. had some good times we while we were there. We had some good times, and actually it was during that time that I recognized in our car rides back and forth to court as you were helping me through that time is when I recognized, ah, it's the same thing that Maya had said to me years ago when I first interviewed her. And she said, who are you, girl? (laughs) And I remember thinking the same thing. Wow, who are you? Who is this dude? And I remember the first time asking you to, to come on there. And I remember the first time you came on the Oprah show and you were your usual Frank self. (laughs) Yes. You were your Mr. Tell it like it is. And the reaction from the audience was like, who is this guy? Oprah's sitting there with this guy and letting him. He's just saying whatever he wants to say. He's running all over. And I said, yeah, don't take it down. Turn it up. Yeah, you told me turn it up. You said, turn the heat up. You're not being as straight with them as you were with me. As you were with me, yeah. You had me against the wall. So anyway, <laughs> I, um, I'm i proud of my instincts for that. I was yeah. right. Well, 
I tell you what, at least twice a year, I send you a, yeah. a message just for the purpose of telling you how much I appreciate what you've done for me and my family. Because Yeah, you've never forgotten. I no, love that about you. Never. I love that about and you. I never will. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't. Y'all were doing pretty good down there in Dallas. You had two Christmas trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never on... been in a house that had that many Christmas trees. There's one upstairs, one downstairs. Turn the corner, there's another one down the hall. Yeah. I mean, what in the world? Well, you know, Robin. Y'all were living the big Dallas life. Yeah, we had a great life there. We really did. And you didn't even want to come to California. Remember, you didn't no. even want to move. To- no, I thought you had to have a passport to get into California. This <laughs> <laughs> is like a foreign you land didn't to want me. want to come here. And no. now look at you. You know, we've lived here longer than anywhere we've ever lived. No, this I didn't is know now that, home. Yeah. Really. Yeah, we've lived here longer than it. We've been here 18 years now. So now this has become home. Yeah. You know, Greg Mydell. Yeah. Which was the first person that I met Greg Mydell and Roger King. Yeah. And we've lost Roger, of course. You and I spoke at his celebration of life when we lost him. I met Greg a year before we started. That's been 18 years. He and I still play tennis together three or four times a week. And you still have the same people. That's pretty incredible that, you know, Carla's still here. Everybody's still here. We've still got the same seven cameramen I had the first day. No. Well, actually, one of them passed away just recently. Oh, my god! So we had to replace So it's a Phil family. Carla's still here. The same cameramen are still here. here. Angie, he was with me. Yeah. The security guard that walked you in, Dwayne, he was here the first day. Everybody seems to kind of stay. And this is what I don't get. You know, you started doing your own, and I knew that you, you know, I was so happy when, I think it was four years we did the show together. Wasn't it four? It was four when we decided to do the show, and then we did some of year five. Okay, some of year five. And I started to call those because, you know, after some days were heavier than other days, and I'd have to say, that on the days that you were on, I was always so happy. I used to call it, I get to leave my brain at home today. (laughs) Phil's going to be there. I get to leave my brain at home. I can just sit in the audience, let you do your Phil thing. Yeah. A couple of times we did five or six shows in a day because they got it layered and went. Yes, yes, It was like crazy. Yeah. And you're still going strong. Yeah. I'm having a good time. You're never going to run out of dysfunctional people. That's the truth. no. No, people say it's a crazy world. No, there's a lot to do. And it's so funny how it's changed. I mean, think back when you started Yeah. to when I started. How many years had you been on when I started? Because it was in... Um, 98. So I started in 86. So I'd been on what? 12 years. Yeah. How much has changed since then? But even from when I started here, the things we're dealing with now. So when I started, the first text had not been sent. There were no smartphones. There That's was no right. YouTube. There was no Snapchat. There was no none of that. Instagram, Instagram Twitter, no Twitter, no. nothing. It's so a different whole world. New, a whole completely new world now. Yeah. When I was ending uh, the Oprah show, we were doing a number of shows about people putting their gadgets down and being able to spend time at the dinner table and what would happen if we took your, you know, your gadgets away. Now you couldn't do it. No. Nobody's uh, given up their phone. No, nobody's given up their phone. Everybody's looking down. That's right. Then now you couldn't even do that. At concerts, people used to wave their lighters yeah, back now and forth. It's, now it's their phone. Now They it's turn on phone. their flashlights and wave them back and forth. Are we getting any better as a culture? We're getting worse at interpersonal skills and interaction because people don't engage as much anymore. Eye contact, actual engaging people in a meaningful dialogue is being replaced by shorthand 
140 character tweets and Insta messages and all of that. People are messaging people inside their own houses. Seriously. Are they? They'll text their kids, come eat. <laughs> no, I'm not hungry. Come anyway. No. Instead of talking about it. Oh, I think that's funny. But I'm sure that's true. It is true. (laughs) I think that's funny, though. That is, that is, uh, that means there's a breakdown. Yeah, there's a breakdown. And dating, people will talk for two years on the internet before they meet. Yeah. So by then they know everything about each other. And so they just meet and go to bed. (laughs) There's no courting. Oh, I love the way you type. Uh, Really, we're losing some of those skills. The astounding percentage of young people within an hour of being on the internet are in contact with a predator. Really? They're being groomed within an hour of being on the internet. Whatever platforms they go on. That's just out of control. I did 217 shows on predators and child molestation during the Oprah show, and I don't think I even made a dent in it, and certainly now could not, because... It's beyond anything any of us can even imagine, your ability to groom and have access to children. As much as we talk about it, and I've done 150 shows or something on it, and still, the next week, there'll be a girl that got out her bedroom window to go meet a 14-year-old boy and got there, and he was 39, and she got in the car anyway. And you think, what the hell? They're just either not listening or because they're hearing it at school, they're hearing it on television, they're hearing it everywhere, but they still do it. Does anything surprise you now? I mean, you've done the range, the spectrum of behavior. Does anything surprise you? As soon as I say no, Chris Watts happens or something like that, and you think, oh my God. As soon as you say no, somebody finds a new way to be evil, a new way to abuse children, Mm -hmm. you know, these 13 children that we saw recently. I mean, it's just astounding to me how people will go and adopt children to abuse them. Yes. And you think, what the hell? If you don't want them, don't get them. Oh, yeah, that case in California last year where they just drive off the cliff. Yeah, Yeah, I know. That is still stunning to me. So, yeah, I do get surprised. And I also get surprised at the strength of human spirit because I'll see someone who's had to bury their children, and I'm thinking, if something happened to Jay or Jordan, you just have to take me to the dump. Mm-hmm. I see the strength of these people that are resilient and come back, and I'm just humbled by it. I'm like, how do you do that? So I'm surprised by that, too. I see both ends of the continuum where people are so inspiring to overcome things. We've had victims of domestic violence where their significant others have knocked them out, doused them with gas, set them on fire. They're burned over 90% of their body. They survive, and they come here and say, I want to help women not be in this situation. Mm, and yeah, they yeah. come on the air for the first time ever seen in public, you know, completely scar tissue and all, and they say, I'm here to help. That kind of thing. I remember a situation where a woman had been filmed. The husband had given the recorder to his 13-year-old son to film him beating his mother. She then came on to talk about it and wanted to help other people recognize the symptoms 
of domestic violence before you actually get beaten down to the point where you can't get yourself out or feel that you can't get out. So people who feel brave enough to take those stories and use them to help other people to see the light for themselves. That's why what we do, I think, really matters because people don't hear those stories if we don't tell them. Yeah. Imagine had you just remained and by the time I met you you were already out of the business of doing psychological work for patients but imagine if you will the number of people you have been able to rescue from themselves or lead them to the light of discovery for finding other counseling for themselves compared to sitting one-on-one in an office yeah I mean, it's like digging with a shovel versus, you know, an army of backhoes. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I do see that because people tell me sometimes, people say, why would somebody come on television and do this versus doing it privately? They don't know where to go privately. That's right. And you've been in their living room. people tell you things because nobody's ever asked them before. That's right. The majority of people have never actually been asked how they truly feel about anything. And I've had so many people tell me that they used to come home from school in the fifth grade and their mother would say, you have to be quiet. Dr. Phil and Oprah are on. Yeah. And now they're here on the show with their fifth or sixth graders. Wow. Saying now my fifth or sixth grader comes home and I tell them, hey, you have to sit down. You can't talk right now. Yeah. And it's come a a full generation. Yeah, I know. Because it's 23 years Mm -hmm. since you and I started being on together. So now it's, think about it's five years plus 17, 23 years. So now kids have been born, grown up and have kids of their own. Yeah. It's been that long. You too, huh? Yeah. It's so rewarding for me to run into people all the time. I just was someplace and a girl started crying and she said, you don't know, you don't know. And I go, yeah, I do. So you came home from school and your mom wasn't home and you were a latchkey kid and you watched the Oprah show every day, four o'clock. And she's like, yes, yes, I did. And so I go, so I raised you. I helped raise (laughs) you, right? Exactly. I have a bunch of youngins out there. I helped raise. Yeah. Yeah. I helped raise you. Did I do a good job? And she says, yes. So I find that to be one of the greatest rewards of the work that I was able to do for those 25 years and now continue to do. Yeah, of course. If we didn't do it and it wasn't done, I think there would be a void. I don't think I'm saving the world, but I think it is advancing the narrative. I think we are making mental health part of the narrative where it wouldn't have been otherwise. I would agree with that. You know, because when I first started in 86, people were adverse to even receiving counseling it was like i would never go to a counselor and my gosh in the african-american community it was just like heresy i mean are you just like yeah yeah so such a stigma such a stigma so i think that that's part of what you've been able to do for sure i remember we used to have have those little two chairs facing each other diets (laughs) diets we used to call them diets yes and people facing each other and What I could feel from the very first day you were on the show and people were like, who is this guy? If people could see the real you in full force telling them about themselves, that they would want to be told about themselves. Mm -hmm. And in a week, we turned that thing around to the point where people were like, I want Dr. Phil to tell me like it is. Exactly. We went from trying to find people to tell it like it is to people like, please let Dr. Phil tell me like it is. 
Yeah, because you told him it was okay. Yes, very much okay. And I think that is true, though, that so many people are just looking for a path, looking for a way to discover the best of themselves. Do you think people are basically good? I think they can be. And I think you said it well in The Path Made Clear when you said it's our job to find our purpose and to honor that purpose. It is a job. I think too many people wake up every day and they're in reactive mode. They do what they do on Tuesday, not because it's what they want to do on Tuesday or because it's what they're called to do on Tuesday, but because it's what they were doing on Monday. Yeah. This isn't what I am authentically called to do. It's just because it's what I was doing on Monday. Right. And so I'm going to do it on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to do it because it's what I was doing yesterday. It's totally reactive mode instead of actually sitting down and saying, now, wait a minute, what am I really equipped to do? What am I really meant to do? And I think one of the biggest tragedies, and I've seen this happen so many times, is I've watched people spend their whole lives working to become the best at something they didn't want to become. Like they become the best accountant, or they become the best chef, or they become the mm-hmm. best whatever. And they didn't even want it. But that isn't what they wanted to be the yeah, best at. Yeah. And they get there and they say, I've reached all of these accolades, I've got all of these degrees, I've achieved all of this, but I wanted to play the guitar. So they became the best at something they didn't want to be the best at, and then it's over. And I think that's terrible. I think that's a terrible, terrible you know, I was, um There was a time where Stebbin and I were co-professors at the Kellogg School of Business, and this was, it was around 99, 98, right after the trial, actually, 98, 99. And then I started the magazine, and I could not grade papers and do the magazine and right. do a show. So I, I, I gave it up. But I remember teaching a leadership course there. And one of the things I was saying to the students is the same thing that I say in this new book, Path Made Clear, is that your real job is to figure out what it is you've come here to do and get about the business of doing that. And unless you do that, you will never actually be happy. And I remember one of the students saying to me, my parents have spent over $150,000 on my education and now I'm here at this you know, fancy school and I'm going to have to go and be what they want me to be. I'm going to have to you know, try to help pay some of this money back. And I said, so what is your life worth? Is that what your life is worth, $150,000? So this student who was arguing with me in class and was going to be an investment banker, went and did it, tried it for a couple of years, hated it, sent me a letter after a couple of years saying, I finally get what you were saying, and now I'm a photographer, but I'm starting my own photography business. And I realized that the reason I didn't do it is because I was afraid of the risk, Mm -hmm. that it was so much easier just to do the thing that my parents wanted me to do rather than than to take the risk. But then in the end, what is your life worth is what I say. So I was was really happy to know that somebody came around. Well, you you said something interesting in the book. You said, on August 14th of 1978 was my first day working on a Baltimore talk show called People Are Talking. Yeah. It was also the last day I had a job. Yeah. I was unceremoniously demoted, and it was the day I experienced the first spark of what it means to become fully alive. Yeah, I remember that just like it was yesterday. So what was it? Because before then, you'd been a newsreader, which you did well. I've seen the tapes. You did well. But what was it about that that clicked in you where you said, this is what I'm meant to do? Well, it was so interesting because I had been trying to get 
another job as a news reporter, anchor woman. I had been demoted from the main six o'clock news. They'd taken me off of the six o'clock news and had put me on this show called People Are Talking because I had a $25,000 contract and they didn't want to have to pay me the money. Couldn't waste it. <laughs> so they couldn't waste it. <laughs> She's a potted plant. Put her over here. <laughs> they didn't want to waste their $25,000. So they go, we're going to put her over there. And up until that time, you know, I had been covering news stories. I remember covering a news story where I started to realize that the American public doesn't hear very well. A drunk driver would have to kill not one person, but seven kids coming from choir rehearsal on mm -hmm. a school bus before people would pay attention. Right. And I saw this in, in the pattern of the news because, you know, my experience was every day I'm in this business of reporting the worst that goes on in the world. And it just made me not feel whole or complete. But my father was in my ear, literally saying, you're not going to find a job like this, pay you $25,000. Who's going to pay you $25,000? People just walking around giving my $25,000. So you better not quit that job because you're not going to make this kind of money. So I felt sort of a responsibility too. Like, you know, because I remember the first time my father actually saved $10,000 and he came home and said, I did it. I've got $10,000 in the bank. I've got this savings and my house is almost paid off. We got her made now. <laughs> we got it made now, $10,000. So I was always trained to live beneath my means. So the idea of saving half of what you made, saving all your money was how I grew up and also saving for the future. So I wasn't going to like quit that job where I'm making $25,000 a year until they demoted me. So, you know, they had to practically fire me in order for me to think about now, what am I going to do? And so when they put me on the talk show, after I had been demoted because I was too emotional, I would go to stories and I'd be standing out there crying with the people. <laughs> I'm so sorry you lost your house in a fire. And then I'd get written up for it. I'd get called in. Winfrey, we saw you on tape and you're standing out there crying. And so. Supposed to have your Ronnie radio voice. Yes, yes, yes. So I always felt strained, like I was pretending to be Barbara Walters and I really wasn't. You know, yeah. I was not, you know. So the first day I was on that talk show, it was the Carvel ice cream man talking about his multi-flavors. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best we could do. And Benny from All My Children. And um, I actually watched All My Children during the day. Well, now I think, what was I doing with my life? I'd come home and watch soap operas. But I felt like, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You're actually talking to people. You're talking to people and you're having a reaction to that. And even though it was the reaction to the, you know, flavors of ice cream, but you're having a reaction to it. You're actually allowed to yeah. express yourself. So I was hooked. I was hooked after the first day and I hadn't had a job since. No. You said you don't believe in coincidences. So what do you believe in? I believe that there is. Why did that happen? That I believe that there is a calling on everybody's life and that that call is constantly trying to pull you in the direction of your highest good and your highest self. And so I don't think it was an accident that you and I met 
and that it had to come through the trial. Who knew that that's what that beef trial was for? I wish I didn't know yeah. that ahead of time. Yeah. I could have said, hey, I'll put you on the show without the trial. Yeah. I don't think that was a coincidence. And I certainly don't think that me having to be demoted because I wouldn't have ever quit. I would have never quit because I would have had that whole yeah. you know, upbringing in my head. So I believe that there is preparation meeting the moment of opportunity. And yeah. I can say that is true for my life. I can say it's true certainly for what I saw in your life. You know, people may say, oh my gosh, it's lucky that Oprah Winfrey, that you had that trial. It wouldn't have been lucky had you not been ready. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing is true for me in that moment and anybody else who's listening to us right now. The opportunity shows up and there are multiple opportunities that show up. But if you're not prepared in that moment, then there's no such thing as luck. I think you got to seize the moments for sure. And I have a strong belief and I think, Most people don't agree with what I'm getting ready to say. I don't think crises or disasters create heroes. I think they reveal who the heroes are or who the cowards are. Yeah, I think when like a hurricane hits and you find these heroes that swim back through the water and save people and bring them out. That person was a hero before that hurricane hit. That's right. They were just revealed by the circumstance. And in that moment. Who's going to disagree with that? I think a lot of people think that somebody's sitting around and they just become Superman in the moment. And I don't believe that. I think they were a Superman before it hit. And that's just the track they ran on. Yeah. And I think. I firmly believe that. I do. Yeah. And if they didn't seize that moment and do that. I see it all the time. These heroic people that do heroic things at critical moments, those were heroes, and you're just fortunate that you met them at that time, and you didn't mess with them at the wrong time. But it's also, Phil, don't you think this is true that I remember, what, two years ago during Hurricane Harvey, just seeing this at the end of a newscast, this African-American guy who was up to his knees in water, and he had his boat out there, And it was CBS, actually, was interviewing him. And he said, oh, this ain't nothing. This is just what Texans do. Yeah. And it just warmed my heart so because Mm -hmm. I thought in this moment, this guy feels like he's a part of something bigger than himself in this moment. Oh, this ain't nothing. This is just what Texans do. And these people come from every walk of life. You You know, it doesn't matter how smart they are or how educated they are. You remember Robin's sister that got doused with the acid? The guy dropped that acid through her windshield. 80% of her body, full Mm -hmm. death burns. This was in the middle of the country. And they raced to this gas station. And there's just an old country boy sitting in there. He races out, strips her clothes off, burns his hands in acid, douses her with hoses and all, and tells the guy driving her, You need to go as fast as you can towards Oklahoma City. I will call, have an ambulance meet you, all of this. I mean, hands, arms burned. This is a stranger. No, just a guy there at like four in the morning. Wow. Just the one guy. I found this guy afterwards, offered him a reward. He's like, come on, what are you you talking about? Yeah. I was there. She needed help. It's just, wouldn't even give me his name. He's just like, Doc, don't even worry about it. This is a guy that, you know, could have said, I don't want to get involved. You know, it could have been that way, right, but instead right. races out there, does what he has to do. He's burned and stuff. So, hey, get over it. It'll, it'll work out. Don't worry about it. Where are those people? You know, you never know where they are, but they're out there. Yeah. 
And it was always there. It was always there. It was always there. He was supposed to be there that night for her. Right. And the same thing is true for fame, though. I mean, I remember saying this to you years ago, and it's true. The thing that I am actually most proud of is that I am the same person I was. And I know this not just because I was reading my journal recently and I think the same things and feel the same way about stuff, but, you know, my feet are still on the ground. I'm just wearing better shoes, but my feet are still on, on the ground because what fame does, what the, the attention does is it puts a magnifying glass so you get to see who the person really is. Yeah. So you actually just become more of who you are, you know? So if you were a jerk before, you just become a more magnified jerk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's true. I think it's definitely true. You said something else in the book I want to ask you about, because this one you're going to have to translate for me. You said, my deepest desire is for people to get still enough to identify what makes them unique and connect to hope, possibility, and fulfillment in all areas of their life. Mm-hmm. But what do I need to explain about that? <laughs> that don't need, I don't even need no explaining. Yeah, but I mean, for <laughs> average people. Yeah that don't use words like hope, possibility, fulfillment, uniqueness, and connection. (laughs) What do we call it, Betty in Idaho? Yeah, okay. It just means get still enough to connect to what do you really want. Get still enough to connect to the part of you that is pure and whole, and that is literally the voice of God in you, speaking to you, through you. And what I have learned and I'm glad I learned it at an early age, is that the voices of the world will drown out the voice of God if you are crazy enough to listen. So stillness is a religious practice for me. I practice stillness in the morning. I practice before I go to bed in order to actually like calm myself from whatever the day is. I just sort of get really, really, really still before I try to fall to sleep. It's like a religion for me. And even this morning when I knew I was going to have a big full day and I was going to be coming to you, I got still under my oaks so that whatever comes from me comes from me in a calm, clear, with decisiveness, clarity, and with truth. You know, I don't come to no bullshit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That it's not a fake thing. So much so that we started, I don't even know we'd start it, you know? Yeah. So that you just come from your pure self. Well, we've known each other a while. Yeah, we we can do that. And here's the reason I'm asking this. By the way, I've got a guy on my advisory board here. Yeah. You know, we have this big shot advisory board here. No, I didn't know you had. What are they advising you for? Everything. We have an advisory board that's made up of the top minds in psychology, psychiatry, medicine, sociology, theology. Really? And so if I have a really complex case... I can send it to all these people, and they're from the top learning centers in the country, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, University of Texas. When you start doing that? Uh, day one. And we built it up. I okay. mean, it, it first was three or four people. Now it's been an average of 15 over the last So if you have a, a case that you think is... You know, it's really layered, and maybe it's particularly intense in neurology or oh, okay. something. For example, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's a doctor of psychiatry at UCLA Medical School, I was just going to tell you that he has a book that he had written this year, and there's research that says that if you take even 15 or 20 minutes each day to be still, to be still, 
to just really get, as T.D. Jake says in The Path Made Clear, when yeah. you interviewed him, he says you get the busyness and everything yeah. out of your head, and you're really still, that is actually one of the few things that is scientifically proven to be anti-aging. Really? It actually allows your brain to repair itself and, really? and your whole body to actually move backwards in a very positive way. I didn't know there was science to to back it, but I can certainly feel that in myself. I feel illumined from the inside out. It does refresh you. It's like stage four sleep on steroids if you really get still and do that. So I, I see where it makes sense, but my point is this. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. which is physiology, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and then self-actualization, I think a lot of people don't ever get past physiology, which is survival. Yeah, Just, what do I need today? Yeah, food yeah. and existence. What do I need today? And then safety, where I don't get killed and all. That's what I mean about being reactive. I don't know what we have to do for people to get still enough to recognize what's unique about them. So they can connect to hope, possibility, and fulfillment because that's way high at the hierarchy. Well, most people can't do it until something really bad happens to them. Right. They're forced to do it. And I know you have, because I have too, interviewed people who've lost everything. Right. And in the midst of losing everything, they find what really matters for themselves. You find out when you've lost everything, what you actually need. Mm-hmm. to make a decent and good life for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But what I want people to understand is we don't have to leap tall buildings in a single bound. I was saying the other day, when I was younger, I used to hear people say, you know, my philosophy of life is, and I used to think, I must be really shallow because I don't have a philosophy of life. Yeah. And then I realized I actually do. do. For me, it's pretty simple, like don't reward bad behavior. I mean, things like that where- yeah. You know, winners do things losers don't want to do. I mean, they're just things that I govern myself by. And when people read this book and they need to read this book, they don't need to read this book. They need to study this book. They need to absorb. It's a nice little bedside thing, right? It is. Yeah. And it's got beautiful still images in it. Yeah. I I did that on purpose. Yeah. You can look at this and really be still. Yes. And one of the reasons I did this book is because I have so many girls that I am mentoring at my school and in life now. We were out of school and continue to want to go to school. I just said, okay, it's enough of the grad school, everybody. It's just, yeah. let's, let's get into the world. Let's, let's get, get, get to it. Let's get a job, y'all. But so many of them, even after finishing school, are still looking for what is the path? What do I do? How do I figure out what I'm supposed to be doing? What is my purpose? How do I know that the decision that I'm making is going to be the right decision for me? And I think so much of your 20s is just about trying to figure it out. I'm I'm trying to let them all understand and that the path will be revealed to you as you experiment and try new things. And oftentimes knowing what you don't want to do, like from in my case, knowing I did not want to be a news reporter the rest of my life helps inform what you do want to do. So, you know, I don't want to do that. And that's really important. And I agree. Hope and possibility is high on the, on the scale when you just are trying to get your rent paid. But in order to be able to do what you need to do to find clarity, to get the rent paid, there needs to be some stillness in order to make real decision-making that is going to move you forward in your life. 
See, I think it's really profound what you said about figuring out what you don't want to do. Yes. Because that can lop off a whole lot of, like you said, one of the things you didn't want to do was be quiet. I didn't want to be quiet. <laughs> you didn't want a job where you had to be quiet. No. And so that takes out a whole lot of behind the scenes sort of stuff. Yes. You don't want to work out in the field. You don't want to be behind the scenes. You no. don't want to be a roofer. No. Listen, I had a, for a day... I was working in a store where I had to organize the socks and stuff. And they were told, telling me, telling me. This is but, Oprah, the sock girl. The sock girl. But I was not allowed to talk to the customers. You cannot talk to anybody. So people would come by and I'm not allowed to even speak to them. I cannot be at a job where I am not allowed to speak all day. Zippert, you got a funny name anyway. <laughs> and, and also, nobody's going to remember your name. That's what I was told. Change that because nobody's going to remember that name. Yeah. Yeah, that's been a real problem for you. <laughs> I just want people to not be like I was and think, you know, I don't have a philosophy, passion, or purpose. And realize you don't have to do this all in one leap. Just start off by saying, yeah, I'm going to be quiet and think about what's important to me in my life right now. Right. What's and important. how do I categorize that? And also, isn't one of the best questions is what do I want? That's the question. That's the question. What do I really want? Not what I'm told I want, yeah. not what I'm expected to do, not what my dad did or my mother wants me to do. What do I want? And that doesn't mean you're being selfish. Yeah. Because the better you take care of yourself, the more you have to give to others. If you're emotionally bankrupt because you're doing what everybody else wants you to do, then you don't have anything to give to your children or the, your mother, your father, anybody. If you're emotionally bankrupt, then you're cheating everybody around you. Take care of yourself so you can have something to give to everybody else. Well, that is my belief. I used to try to avoid anybody ever thinking or feeling that I was full of myself. It was like the worst thing anybody could say. Oh, she's so full of herself. Well, I'm not full of myself, but I want to be full to the point where my cup runneth over and I have enough to offer other people and I'm not depleted in my own life. You know, the wonderful thing about getting older, though, is that you just care less and less about what anybody thinks. Yeah. It's Isn't amazing that the truth? how that happens. It's the best thing about getting older yeah yeah you just want to say oh really is that a problem for you the closer i get to the end but you never had that see i no. had it real bad you never had it i had the disease to please for a long time you know that yeah but i've never had the need to be loved by strangers really yeah like screw them <laughs> i don't know them anyway <laughs> and see the thing is no matter what you do somebody's going to have a problem with it right absolutely i don't care what you do I could stop my car on sunset to keep from running over a kitten, and somebody's going to say that arrogant bastard blocked traffic on sunset today. Yeah. So, what? I mean, somebody's going to say something, so you might as well do what you want to do. Yeah. It took me a while to get there, though. Oh, yeah. I think you're I pretty think well I'm there, pretty <laughs> yeah. much there. I guess we did need to get older. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. That's a beautiful thing about getting older, though, I think, and to remain healthy and to be able to look at your life and have no regrets about it because, you know, I've always led with kindness. You know, I think I have. I feel the best when I can do something for someone else and that person really appreciates it. That's why the letters that you send me, you have no idea. Really? You have no idea. And that's all I ever wanted from anybody is to know that, oh, this is the thing you've done and that this thing is appreciated by somebody, that it was received in the spirit in which it was offered. 
You know, the last one you sent, I was like, oh, girl, God, you won't believe this letter. Phil just wrote to me. She goes, send it to me, send it to me. <laughs> I go, no, I'm just going to, I'm not going to send it to you. I'm going to read it to you. And then, so we're both on the phone, like, crying. she goes, oh, and that is really good. And I know how much words mean to you. It's true. I think the most you can offer someone is your sincere gratitude for them being in your life, your sincere gratitude and appreciation for something that they have done and that you can feel that in the way that that person has offered it. I don't think there's anything better than that. That's why I told my girls the first year I had all these girls and they were going out buying me flowers and teddy bears and I please do not. I don't have I, there's no room in my house for anything else. Just share. Just Got another bear. <laughs> another bear. Give me your words. Give me your words. I want to know what this experience means. And so last year for my 64th birthday, one of the girls, the girl who went to Stanford, gave me a little wooden box with 64 reasons why I love you with the tiniest little things that I didn't, you know, normally recognize about myself. It's, the, it's one of the best gifts I've ever received. So I took the letter that letters you've given me over the years, the best ones, and I've put them in their own little frames in a box in my security drawer. So I have them. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yes, on record. I'm glad that that matters because I don't think people um, say thank you enough to you. Well, you did. Well, I try. Yeah, you do. Yeah. But, you know, there's a wonderful line in The Color Purple. That's why it's called The Color Purple, where... The Shug character is speaking to the Seely character, and she says, God goes through all the trouble of making the color purple. And God gets so pissed when you don't notice the color purple. Because <laughs> he went through all that trouble to make the color purple. And then you just walk right by it and don't even notice. And she says, because what God loves most is appreciation. Yeah. And I think that is also true of humans. People, humans, love being appreciated yeah even if they didn't do it for that purpose yes even if they didn't do it for that purpose yeah, yeah. because you don't do the things you do for that purpose no there's no, no strings there's no expectations no 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 but i will say this let me just go on record i had no idea i did not think that this dr phil thing would last 17 seasons no i did not i thought even said to people yeah i give him two or three seasons He's going to get bored with it. He's going to go on. I said, and then he'll be back in Texas. He'll be. <laughs> Little did I know that you would own Hollywood. <laughs> there would be fill in the blanks and the doctors and the bulls. And the, I mean, now there's an entire empire. Little did I know that you'd take a lack into it. Well, shit, you laughed. Somebody had. <laughs> you took a lack into it. I mean, really, what you and Jay and. Robin have done. It's great. Y'all was taking over TV. Come on. Well, my idea is if you're going to do something, do it. You, I mean, really? You know, go I, all in, I believe in, in that, right? too. I believe that, too. Yeah. I mean, go all in. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Y'all did. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all did. We've got several projects with CBS Studios right now and things we're working on, and I, I love doing it. I'm working on several with Jordan, and he has a new single that he dropped yesterday, 
and it's just going crazy. So he's having fun. Jay's having fun. Well, Grand Jordan's kids. career was going to be Jordan's career. Yeah. Even without y'all. Oh, no question. Okay. Yeah. Jordan's career was going to be Jordan's yeah, he career. He has I'm talent. About, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about, he has talent. We have y'all. persistence. <laughs> I'm talking about y'all. Yeah. He's y'all. got the talent. We've got the persistence. He was going to be a rock star. And y'all, I don't know if y'all would have been like, you know, television empire people. Like, I don't think that would have happened. No, that's why I keep Were telling you Were it not for about, that trial, I do not think that would have happened. I oh, no. Don't, I don't I, think listen, that would have happened. Remember at the trial, I never said one word to one person. I never gave interviews. No, and I know. people say, who are you? I'm not here. Yeah. <laughs> remember, that's what I always said. They say, who are you? No. I'm, I'm not here. Yeah. And you, Mr. Introvert, who the hell would have thought this? All of this. You know, I tell people that I'm shy. They don't believe it. I know. You know it. I do know people it. People don't do believe it. it. I do know it. I mean, my hell is a cocktail party. <laughs> <laughs> Yours and mine. And I do vodka and you don't. So there you go. Yeah. My hell is a cocktail party because... I don't think I'm very interesting, and I'm not interested in what they have to say. <laughs> I mean, small talk, right? Yes. I know that feeling. You don't think you're very interesting, and you want to say, and I don't think you are either. <laughs> yeah. You can't possibly give a shit what I think, and I know I don't care what you think, so why don't we just both go home, put oh, on our pajamas? Oh, gosh, I know small talk you know, is I'm, terrible. I know. It's just the it, worst. Hate it, hate it, it's hate the it. worst. Yeah. No, I, I've seen you at parties and you're like over in the corner somewhere. You're like behind Robin. You know, the worst thing you've ever said to me, do you know what it is? You no, I don't. It? No, I don't. Oh, what? you do too. No, I don't. We're at the Tina Turner concert. Oh. <laughs> and what did I say? We're in the front row, right? Yeah. Or maybe it's the second row because there's nobody in the front row except your security guards who have their back to the stage watching you train could have run over me but it doesn't matter but they're watching you and i love tina turner remember we'd been backstage yeah. met her and everything thank you i'm like really into this we're about an hour into the concert i feel a tap on my shoulder <laughs> and i said yeah what she said what concert are you watching <laughs> i said what she said, what concert are you watching? I'm clapping and tapping my foot. And it's like, I'm so offbeat. She's like, what concert are you watching? So offbeat in another arena. Not in this one. You're I mean, not you, in this one. You, know, you and Robin look like backup singers. You're over there. You yes, got it going on. Yeah, I look like Naven from The Jerk. <laughs> I do remember that. That yeah. was a fun night, though. It was. I have another question for you about the book. You want to answer it? Sure. You got to translate again. You said life is about growth and change, and when you are no longer doing either, you've received your first whisper. This is in chapter three, which is about whispers. Whispers. By the way, guys, there are 10 chapters in this book, and it doesn't tail off. 10 is as powerful as one, but this is chapter three, whispers. You say growth and change, and if it's not happening, that's your first whisper. My question is, How do you know the difference between growth and change in a healthy way Mm -hmm. and never being satisfied and being caught in ascendancy, where you just always climb and climb and climb and never satisfied with anything? No matter what you get, no matter what you achieve, no matter what you do, nothing's ever good enough. How do you know the difference? Well, I think you know the difference by the way you feel. So... I would have to say, and I think you can attest to this for yourself too, that the ascension feels good and solid every step along the way. And you would know this now, having built an empire, that, <laughs> that 
this feels good. And now, okay, now I'm going to move to another level. And now that still feels good. I'm growing, I'm changing. And for me, the moment you stop growing into new discoveries, a new way of seeing things, a new way of creating things, that's the first whisper that you need to do something to change. When you feel stuck or you feel like life isn't moving for you anymore or you feel bored, bored being bored, just like you had said to your staff, if you ever get bored, that would be, if you feel bored, then that is a signal, a whisper to you that something needs to change. That explains it to me. You still value what you have. Yes. What you've achieved or are doing. Like maybe you're working with disadvantaged children. Yeah. But now you want to work with abused women and expand your philanthropic activities, your helping of others, or open a school or whatever. But it doesn't mean that you don't still value this as much. You just want to reach further. Absolutely. And and let's just look at you as an example. I mean, so you were doing the talk show, doing that very well, super successful, and decided, oh, gee, there are some other areas that I also might want to explore. Let's try this. So you created another show. So you make the doctors. Then you do that. Then you say, well, you know what? We've done very well in this non-fictional format, being able to create talk in different forms. And then you say, I don't know what made you say it or think you could do it, but to say, I'm going to get into creating dramas. Well, that's exactly what I mean by Mm -hmm. the ascension and continuing to grow, change, develop, move yourself to the next level and the next level and the next level. That's what you've done. I think it keeps you challenged. And when you're challenged, you keep thinking and it keeps your juices flowing. And what made you think you could create bull? Well, Jay came and said, you're undervaluing how interesting everything that you were doing before you started doing this really is. And I think we should really take a look at that. Because he's based on you, right? That character's based on Uh you. Dr. Jason Bull is... You, Dr. Phil. Yeah. So we built it out from that. And then when we did that, then they said, well, we want some other things. And so we created some other things. And they said, that's great. Were you scared at first? Were you nervous? Um, Well, they told me it doesn't always happen this way. (laughs) Yeah, because it does not happen this way. (laughs) I mean, were you nervous about moving into prime time? I was nervous about the execution. Yeah. Because I can't go on screen and do it. So you've got to stay back and and delegate it. Let somebody else do it. That was the nervous part for me because you got to let you can't do all of it. You got to let somebody else do it. Mm-hmm. But we've got a great cast and Michael Weatherly's really good. He and I look just alike, don't you think? <laughs> exactly. I can't tell you. Apart. That's why we put glasses on. So you, can, <laughs> so you can tell us apart. I know. I'm I'm so proud of what you all have been able to accomplish. It's really you know it's one of those things where. I certainly know that what we did in the early days opened a door, but as I say, opened a door, you took that baton and you created a baton factory. (laughs) You you took it, you didn't just run with it, you created a baton factory. There's no way I would have ever been on television at all if I had never met you and we had never done what we've done. I had no aspirations to do it. I had no- You had never thought about it a day. Not a day. 
Not a day. I mean, you don't look like this and go on TV. Everybody on TV looks like Johnny Depp or something, you know, or or George Clooney. You know, come on. I remember I did my first book. You said, "Oh, you'll see it." It's got his big old bald head right on the cover. <laughs> can't so, miss it, folks. You can't miss it. Uh, uh, just make it a trademark, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. That's what you are. Yeah. You're not going to grow hair. That's yeah, for sure. It's not going to happen. So, anyway. what's next for you? What's on your path? My path is now going to the next level, actually. I'm excited to be working with Apple. They're in a billion pockets. And to be able to create content that gets exposed to the world in that way. Actually, one of my first series I'm going to be doing is on mental illness. And to be able to take my time in telling those stories in a way that help people see it and bring it home to them in a way that they see, they see themselves. And creating the world's largest book club, going to be doing wonderful shows out of Apple stores and streaming them around the world. And whenever there's something of particular interest to me that I feel like, oh, gee, I could use a wider platform to expose this idea, this subject to a world of people, that's what I'll do. Do you feel challenged by it all? Are you excited about it like you were when you were doing the Oprah show? It's a different kind of excitement because I've mellowed into myself, you know? And so then I was just, you know, for so many years, I never didn't even look at my itinerary until the thing, whatever I was doing was over because I was just being pulled and pushed into so many different directions. And now I pick and choose what I want to do when I want to do it. And I love my home so much so that I spend as much time there as I choose to Mm -hmm. and build my schedule around what I want to do when I want to do it. And I don't do anything without thinking about what it is and how it's going to affect my overall balance in my life. So, I mean, I've reached the epitome of what it means to manifest true wealth in your life because I don't feel like I just have money and things. I feel that my friends, I feel like the girls that I've raised that even, you know, I call them my daughters, even though I didn't give birth to them. I feel like the people that I associate myself with, I feel like my surroundings, I feel all of it is a source of great wealth and richness to me. The relationships that I have, the friendships that I have, the way that I move through the world, all of it brings a sense of richness to me. Are you working less than you were when you launched the network, which was 20 hours a day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working much less. I really have a really pretty balanced life. So you're really taking time. I'm actually like, if I wasn't here, I'd be out in the yard right now throwing a ball to Sadie. Yeah. I'm taking time for myself. I'm taking time to be with Stedman, to be with my friends, to be with the girls, to... In addition to also keeping myself stimulated with work that I love. Have you taken the time along the way to um, stop and look around from time to time and go, wow, what a ride? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. And I think that what we were talking about earlier, it's not like what we do or have done changes the world, but it certainly changed the narrative. And I think that having a show like mine and prior before me, there was Donahue and now you having this continuum in the culture helps reflect the culture back to itself. 
mm-hmm. and helps people see themselves in ways that can improve their lives. It doesn't mean that everybody who watches is improved, but it's certainly there with the offering of people in being able to improve them, their lives. And something that you shared with me years ago when I was upset over some guest who didn't get it. And I was saying, God, even after all that, and you did the diet and, said, and she still didn't get it. And you said, you're not doing it specifically and necessarily for that person. You're doing it for all the people who see themselves in that person. Yeah. Or I don't want to be that person. You're doing it for all those people. So... I continue to be rewarded by not just the women who people like the women who came up to me crying, saying, you know, you raise me, but rewarded by knowing that the thing that Maya had said to me when I told her that, oh, Maya, I'm so sorry you missed the school opening. And she said, I couldn't be there and I'm sorry I wasn't there. And I said, oh, it's going to be my greatest legacy. And she said, you have no idea what your legacy is. You have no idea. And I was like, no, no, that's going to be my legacy. And she said, uh, did you hear me? I said, Joe, I have no idea what your legacy will be. And she was making biscuits and she put them down. And she said, it's everybody who's ever watched a show and decided I'm going to leave my abusive husband. Everybody who said, I'm going to get on a better diet. I'm going to go get my blood pressure checked. It's everybody who said, I'm not going to hit my kids anymore. It's every, she said, so everybody in the audience, watching the audience, the guests, the experts, something you said, something somebody else said, that is all a part of the legacy and you have no idea how wide reaching, how the manifestation of that work has affected everybody who's seen the show. And you know, it's worldwide. I have people from Sweden, from all over come up and say, because of what you said, I took action with my mother and did this, that, and it's changed everything. And you think, that was Who a knew? show I did five years ago. That's right. And, you know, and you, that is your legacy. Yeah. It's every life you've touched. She's right about that because, you know, you talk about everything that happens. You say, what is here to teach me? Yes. And I think I've been so blessed because I can honestly say everything I have ever done has prepared me for what I'm now doing. Nothing has ever been like a total outlier. Right. I mean. Nothing's it, wasted. I never spent a year selling shrimp out of a van down by the river. <laughs> I mean, everything, you know, it's either been, you know, CSI or private practice or That's researching and writing. This moment at this it's table. all brought it right here to being able to do the things that I'm doing. And it's true. Sometimes the worst guests are the best teaching tools. Yes. Because people go, oh, my God, that sounds like me. I'll never say that again. Yes. One of the best lessons I ever learned from you was it was a woman in the audience who stood up and said that her husband had cheated on her and she didn't know if she could go forward and she didn't. And you said to her that you don't have to trust him if you trust yourself. Yeah. And now I teach that in class. Dr. Phil said. <laughs> yeah. And that was just somebody in the audience who stood yeah. up and said that. And then this gym comes out of your mouth. But I feel when I look at the the path that I chose and it's clearer to me now than ever before. But when I look at it, I don't have any kind of regrets about it at all. I just think, what an amazing life. And I tell Jay and Jordan all the time, like we'll come walking in the pathway down there, the red light flashing, and you hear the audience in there and stuff. And I tell them both, guys, you know, Jordan's getting ready to go on tour and I say, you know, stop, look around. You are living the dream. Yeah. I mean, both of Jay and Jordan, I say, 
don't let this whiz by you so fast yeah. because it's the journey, not the destination. I mean, enjoy Absolutely. every step of the Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it really is. I know you're busy, so I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to tell people where I'm going to put some excerpts from The Path Made Clear on the website that goes with this podcast so people will know. But they really need to get this book and put it by their bedside and read themselves to sleep at night, right? Yeah. You really need to do that. Just think about how many of my books you sold, so now I'm selling one of yours. <laughs> and you know what? This is the thing. I did this, as I said, for all my girls. And what I want to happen is just for people's lives to continue to be revealed to them by, you know, something you read in this book or whatever you use to guide you on your path. But I'm taking all of my proceeds from this book and they go to the Boys and Girls Club of Kosciuszko, Mississippi. I built a Boys and Girls Club, mm, I think now what, 13 years ago down there? Mm -hmm. And they need money to sustain it. And so I'm taking all the proceeds and I'm giving it to that for kids who grew up just like I did. Right. So in this rural is rural Mississippi. So this isn't for more shoes. This is not for more shoes. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to be using it for anything other than helping other kids. Yeah. And what a great thing that's to do. Because, like you say, it grew up just like you did, which was not exactly wealthy. Not exactly. And may I just say, rural Mississippi is still rural Mississippi. Yeah. You go back, you know, I went back several years ago. People are still sitting on the same porch in the same beat up rocking chair yeah. on the same dirt road. I saw a statistic the other day that said in rural America, and it's worse in the rural South, 58% of rural America has no mental health professional available to them at all. Not psychiatrists, not psychologists, Whoa. nothing. Zip, zero, nada, nothing. So they're without. So when you have somewhere like a Boys and Girls Club where people can go with responsible adults yeah. to support them. Because, After school programs. Yeah, so they're not latchkey. They've got somewhere to go with an adult to put their arm around their shoulder and say, hey, here's how you need to handle this. Here's what you need to do. All the difference in the world. It is outcome determinative. Well, that's what we're trying to do. You're doing a good thing here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks for coming over and doing this. Well, I just wanted to fill in the blanks if I could. Yeah. <laughs> you have. You filled in the blanks. Find Fill in the Blanks in your podcast app and subscribe for free so you don't miss an episode.